So God, we come before you today acknowledging that not a single one of us is without sin. We've all fallen short. But you have told us that if we confess our sins to you, that you are faithful and just. You purify us from all unrighteousness. We're reminded in the Old Testament that by your stripes we're healed. And Father, we thank you for those words we sing about in the song as we were leading up to this communion. You've taken those things, the worst of us, you've put it on the cross so that we might live and have real life in you. When we were baptized, we came out of that water clean, renewed. Father, as we come out of this time of communion today, we also feel that same joy, that same renewal. Thank you for forgiveness, for grace, and for the opportunity to serve you today and the days to come. We love you, Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I want to talk to you today about the concept of after the banquet. Now, I don't know if you went to a big Thanksgiving event or not. A lot of you probably hosted Thanksgiving. Others were involved in other ways. But, but one of the things about the, the banquet is uh, after it's over, there's a lot of work to be done. Like, it's a lot of work to get ready for Thanksgiving, but if you're the host, right, there's a lot of work after. Let's just review a couple of things you've probably been involved in already, right? So if you had the kids in and family and friends in, there's the, the part of getting all the dishes back to the right people. I still haven't got that all figured out yet this year. I'm working on it. Uh, there's the matter of, you know, what do you do? How, how long, now this is, you're going to surprise me, surprise me, how long can, can that pie uh, still set out before maybe it's, you shouldn't eat it anymore, right? How many days is the, I mean, I try to, believe me, I try to do my part uh, to get that pie taken care of, but how long can you go? Uh, you know, how long should it stay out? And, and uh, how many days is it appropriate to keep eating turkey before, you know, that's just, it's just all those things that are after the banquet, right? Uh, well, I want to talk to you today about a really amazing event from the life of Jesus. And it's a story about what happened after a banquet. Now, his banquet wasn't a Thanksgiving banquet. It was a, a banquet at a wedding feast. And it's told in John chapter 2. And if you have your Bibles, you can go there. The whole sermon today is this one text. We're going to ground it in John chapter 2 today. And, and in this text, we, we start off right after that whole wedding feast thing. It was a three-day banquet that had happened in Cana. I'm not going to reread that. That's not our principal story, what happened at the banquet. But just so we have context, let's just review some of the facts really quickly. At the banquet, Jesus was there. He had brought his brand new disciples. They were brand new. They had just been chosen. He brought his disciples to the wedding banquet. Uh, his mother was at the wedding banquet. So probably the wedding was for someone that their family was either acquainted with or maybe even someone in the family. As the banquet had gone on, you know the story, on the third day, they'd run out of wine. Uh, and so they, they didn't have any more wine, and the family was all worried that this was a huge social faux pas. They'd be the laughing stock of the community. And so Mary turns to Jesus and says, hey, 
Uh, they're out of wine, and then there's a little exchange about, hey, what am I supposed to do about it? <laughs> and Mary's like, you know what to do about it. And it, it, we don't get all the details there, but, you know, a mom has a way of haranguing her son if she needs to. And I don't know if she played the guilt card on him or not. You know, I gave, brought you into this world, you know, which is a really interesting thing if Mary said that. I don't know how that all went down. But however it turned out, however it turned out, Jesus says, hey, bring me these six empty jars, fill them with water, and you know the end of the story, right? He tells them to take some out, take it to the master of the banquet, and when, when they do, it's the best wine. And the, and the master of the banquet says, hey, you know, most people bring out the, the, the best wine early, but you, you brought it out at the end. It was important because it kind of has this idea that from the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, right, there were better things to come at the end. And uh, hang in there and see what he's got planned for the end of the story. That's the event that is the banquet. Now, I want to pick up just after that event, and I want us to focus on some things that happen after the banquet. So if you have your Bibles, let's turn to John chapter 2, and let's pick up the story in about verse 12. Now, it says here that after this, after the banquet... Jesus went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. And there they stayed for a few days. You know, when Jesus goes down there after the banquet, one of the very first things he does is he renews and he strengthens bonds of friendship and a family. I don't know if that happened at your Thanksgiving or not, but it was important to Jesus. This is the very beginning of his ministry. A lot of important things are going to happen in his ministry, but before all those other things happen, Jesus looks to those closest to him, and he wants to strengthen them for what's ahead. That's important. There's a really interesting thing that will happen in Jesus' relationship with his brothers, especially with James, but maybe also with Jude and with his family, who at times, unlike Mary, they seem to waffle in what they think about Jesus. They struggle. They waver. And so I think it's worth noting that while Jesus came to save the whole world, he also came to make sure that those in his family knew Jesus and they knew who he was and they knew who God was and what God's plan was. So Jesus is always mindful of them. He'll be critical of them before this is all over. And after his resurrection, he'll appear to James to bring him, make sure that James is part of the faith. Here at the beginning, Jesus says, these bonds of friendship and a family are important. So... He starts the journey at home. Mom's home cooking with his disciples, his siblings. He spends some time strengthening bonds. I do think there's a lesson in there for us. It's important for us to strengthen the bonds of friendship and family. Especially now, in the time we live where we recognize life is precious and it's fleeting. And we might not all be together in such a venue again. Uh, those moments are important. And we should make the most of them. The first lesson, I think, is this. Jesus saw the importance of strengthening the bonds of friendship and family. And it's probably appropriate for us to do the same thing. So get that into our hearts and minds. What relationship in your life needs strengthening right now?
Jesus took time to strengthen relationships. After that, he began to do something else. I don't know what your circumstance was when you finished the holidays. At my house, there's this big effort to get the house clean and ready. I don't know why that is. It goes back to when I was a kid that, I mean, the house should be clean all the time, but right before the holidays, for whatever reason, everything gets scrubbed down. It's like spring cleaning in, in November. And then after you have the holiday, what has to happen? You have to do it all again because everything gets destroyed. It's amazing. Maybe not at your house, but that's kind of my experience. I have grandkids. But... What's fascinating about Jesus' story is that after the banquet, he has to go do some house cleaning. I think it's really fascinating that Jesus had to clean house. Not Mary's house and not the house of the wedding feast, but his father's house. After the banquet, Jesus cleans house. Listen to what happens in verse 13. Now, when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep, and doves. He found others sitting at tables and exchanging money. So Jesus made a whip out of cords, and he drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers. He overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Then the Jews demanded of him, well, what miraculous sign can you show to prove your authority to do all this? And Jesus answered them and said, destroy this temple and I will raise it up again in three days. Now, the Jews replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. And after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. So then they believed the scriptures and the words Jesus had spoken. This is one of those great stories, and, and this is a sermon in itself, and I won't go into all that we could explore here in the cleansing of the temple. The important thing here is they, they weren't even supposed to be where they were. Jesus was upset with them because his house was supposed to be a place of worship where people could draw closer to God, and in truth, these people were making it harder for worshipers, making it harder for people to access God. There was a lot that was at play, but Jesus said, I'm not going to have any of it. The house will be clean. It causes us to think about something. In the world that Jesus lived in, we had this group of ruling religious people who held tremendous regard for God's words. And they had memorized vast swaths of the Old Testament. And yet those religious leaders had allowed for profit things to happen in the temple that were forbidden. Yet they were the people that were in charge. Jesus walks into that place and immediately with razor-sharp, laser-like accuracy, says, this is wrong. This is wrong. 
I don't know about you. I don't like hearing the words, you're wrong. <laughs> That's not my favorite phrase to hear. Maybe you can handle it better than I can. I, I'm not, I, I hear it sometimes, and it's true sometimes, but I don't like to hear it. You're wrong. Jesus walks into this place, and in his actions and his words, to the people who are there and the people who are running, if you will, the temple, he says to them all, what you're doing is wrong. It shouldn't be happening here. We're going to clean the house. I don't know if Jesus was to come visit you a few days after the banquet, <laughs> what would he find in the temple that's in your heart, in the space where you meet with God? Is there stuff that needs to be cleaned up? You see, Jesus is in the business of cleaning things up after the banquet, and maybe something needs cleaned up in you and in me. Uh, do we have the willingness to allow him to clean the house. Now, it's fascinating. There's so many things that happen in this chapter that are foreshadowing of things that are to come at the end of Jesus' life. And one of them is the, the, the words that will be thrown back at Jesus at his trial and when he's on the cross. The people will twist his words to say, he said he was going to destroy the temple. They'll twist the words of Jesus. That comes from right here in this opening story when he's cleaning the house. It tells me that this day when Jesus did this thing, it really stung them. They remembered what he said. It stung. It hurt. And instead of getting better because of what Jesus had done, these leaders became bitter because of what Jesus had done. How about you and I? If Jesus speaks a word to us that we don't want to hear through his word, through his messengers, will we allow it to make us better or will we allow it to make us bitter? Well, this story continues, and I want to finish this chapter because there's a couple of things that I, I really want you to get a hold of. One of the things that happens next is that Jesus turns his eyes, I think, to the future. When Jesus said those words, he said the Jews demanded of him a sign. What Mary is saying, he tells them, listen, destroy this temple and in three days I will rebuild it. Jesus is putting his eyes firmly on things that are to come. He knows from the beginning of his ministry that even though it may end in, seemingly end in a horrible way, God has a plan. And Jesus already knows it. He already trusts it. He's already talking about it. He's setting his eyes toward the future. He's telling them three years in advance, listen, destroy it, I'll rebuild it in three days. He looks to things that are to come. Even though there's a horror that exists in what's going to happen to Jesus, there is also a hope. A hope. And it wasn't just a great hope for Jesus. It was a great hope for us. You see, Jesus, even as he was confronting those leaders at the temple that day, 
he was actually, although no one perceived it yet, he was actually offering a huge word of hope. The good news was being shared that day. Jesus was setting his eyes on things that are to come. And we would be wise to do the same. After the banquet's a good time to turn our eyes towards Jesus and to turn our eyes towards things that are to come. Jesus had already fulfilled this promise. He's already fulfilled this prophecy. Destroy it and in three days I'll rebuild. But there are other prophecies yet unfulfilled. The angel's prophecy at the ascension in the same way that you see him leaving, he will return. Jesus promised that he would come back, that he was preparing a place for us, that one day he would come back to take us to be where he is. It's probably wise for us to do what Jesus did after the banquet. It's good for us to have an eye to the future, to see the things that are to come. Well, then one last thing happens. As we kind of close out the second chapter, there's a really good passage that, that tells us in verse 23 and following a little bit more about the story of what Jesus is doing here. Now, it says here that while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing, and they believed in his name. You see, Jesus began to lean into God's work. He leaned into it. He was doing it. Despite the early criticisms, he didn't stop. And he was doing miraculous signs, John says. He was working miracles. Now, while he was there, Jesus did not trust himself to the people, that is, to those religious leaders. He didn't do those signs in front of them that they wanted, but he was helping the others that were in the community and then the area of Jerusalem. He didn't need the testimony of, of man, and it's really emphasizing here those religious leaders. He didn't need their blessing to do what he was doing. His blessing and his authority came from God. For God knew, or excuse me, for Jesus knew what was in a man. This is one of the ending points that I think is fascinating. Jesus leans into the ministry. He was about his father's business. He leaned into the work and and, and it ends, John ends the second chapter with those words, Jesus knows what's in us. He knew who and what they believed, what their thoughts were. He perceived it. He knows yours. He knows mine. He knows what's in us. He knows what strengthens us. He knows what scares us. He knows our sins and he knows our, our salvation. He knows what's in us. So let me encourage you and let me challenge you that after the banquet, it's a great time for us to draw closer to our Savior. It's important that we renew bonds of friendship and family, especially for those who might not yet have accepted Jesus just like Jesus did. And it's appropriate for us to take some time to do inventory and to clean things in our own lives that might not be what God wants. It's important for us to set our eyes on the future, on the things that God has planned for us. And it's important, just like Jesus did, for us to lean in to God's work because he's watching and he knows. 
And he loves us. And he encourages us. And he offers us, like he did at the wedding, new wine and a new life. And he longs for us to have a close relationship with him. And he can help us clean up the parts of our lives that need cleaning. And he wants to give us a hope and a future, and he wants for us to come alongside of him in his work. The question, I guess, before us is, what am I going to do, and how am I going to do it? Now, I recognize that we live in a perilous time, and, and for all of us, there, there is uncertainty about what's going to happen. It reminds me, in some ways, of, of the difficult life of Corey Tinboom. Remember her? Corey Tinboom was a very famous woman who survived the Holocaust with her family. It's an important story, and a, a very strong faith story of being taken into a Nazi internment camp and awaiting death and how that God watched over her and brought her through a horrible ordeal. Years later, she was asked a question about that event and how she had survived, and, and she told a most curious story about her family. She said that, that when she was in her home, when the world around them had started to kind of crumble and things were falling apart, there was a fear that their, their, the Torah, the, the Old Testament scriptures that were so important to their family would be taken away from them. And they didn't want that to happen, and they didn't want to lose them. And so their father had said, listen, here's what we're going to do. We're going to, we're going to take out these little tiny pieces of the scripture, we're going to tear them out, and we're going to put them in our shoes, and we're going to stand on God's word, whatever we do. But that was an interesting thing, and there became a phrase that they would use. Her father would say, Corey, what's in your shoes? <laughs> it was a way of saying, are you standing on God's word? And Betsy, what's in your shoes? Are you standing on God's word? Are you believing him? Are you trusting him uh, with your life right now? And it became something they did all the time, and even when their shoes were confiscated, the phrase never ended. What's in your shoes, Corey? Are you standing on God's word, on God's plan? Are you trusting it? It's a good question. I'd ask you the same today. What's in your shoes? What are you standing on? What are you standing for? And who are you standing with? If you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior, I invite you to do so as we stand and we sing our hymn of invitation.